Sunday, as you probably know, is the first Sunday of Advent. And what we're about to do in lighting these candles is a tradition. Of course, it's not in the Bible, but it's a tradition that is at least 1,500 years old. And on this day, in, well, the number probably is millions of churches around the world, millions. Right now, at this very time, people are lighting candles. Now, the word Advent is a Latin word. It comes from a Latin word, which means coming. And at Christmas time, we celebrate three comings. The first coming is what we call the incarnation. That's Jesus coming to this world when he came as a baby. And that, of course, we know as Christmas. That's his first coming. The second coming that we celebrate at Christmas time in the Advent is the coming of Jesus into our lives. We call that conversion. Incarnation, conversion, and the third coming that we celebrate at Advent is his second coming. He's going to come back to this earth again. We don't know when. We do know a bit of how, but we don't know when, and that's still future. So this week, we're going to light the first candle, and this candle is called the prophet's candle. Because as you know, and as um, Regina talked about this morning, the fact that the Messiah would come and many specific things about his coming were told to us way, way, way in advance. And so we light today the prophet's candle, and that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on what the prophets of the Old Testament said about the coming of the Christ or the Messiah. And actually, it's beyond astounding. If you have a bulletin today, please look at the back page, uh, the back side, because there are a lot of Bible passages there. And I hope you will use this as a reference in the future, because we're going to look at a bunch of prophecies about Jesus coming, and then we're going to see how they were fulfilled in Jesus. This is the prophet's candle. But someone has said... Predicting the future is easy. Getting it right is the hard part. It's very, very difficult to predict the future. And just to show you how difficult it is, let me give you some examples. This is said in 1828 by Dr. Dionysus Larder, who was a scientist. Quote, rail travel at high speed is not possible because passengers unable to breathe would die of asphyxia. This is said in 1903, and this was a bank president advising Henry Ford's lawyer. Here's what he said. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. It was wrong. This is John Philip Sousa the famous composer, 1906. Recorded music will destroy all musical ability. I don't think so. This one is one of the chief executives of 20th Century Fox, 1946. Quote, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Man, this is Variety Magazine, 1955. 
Rock and roll? It'll be gone by June. This is Decca Records, their executive, speaking to the manager of the Beatles in 1962. The Beatles have no future in show business. This is the UN, the U.S. Surgeon General, William H. Stewart, speaking to Congress in 1969. You can close the book on infectious diseases. There will be no more. Boy, he's brilliant. We got to be sure we hire him again. <laughs> this is 2005, Steve Chen. He's the co-founder of YouTube. Speaking about YouTube. There's just not that many videos I want to watch. <laughs> this is David Pogue in the New York Times, 2006. Everyone's always asking me when Apple will come out with a cell phone. My answer is probably never. And this is 2007. Steve Ballmer, the Microsoft CEO. There's no chance that the iPhone is ever going to get any significant market share. These are idiots. <laughs> and yet they're incredibly brilliant. They were so far off, it's unbelievable. And yet they were so far off with just a couple of years. They're way off. You see, to predict the future is almost impossible. Why? Someone wrote, these are the forecasting rules. Number one, it is very difficult to forecast, especially the future. Number two, he who lives by the crystal ball soon learns to eat ground glass. Three, the moment you forecast, you know you're going to be wrong. You just don't know when and in which direction. And number four, if you ever get it right, never let them forget it. <laughs> to predict the future is something only idiots do. And these, these are brilliant people who are idiots. They have, you, because we don't know the future. And especially if you make specific predictions. Now, I could predict, I think one day there will be a president of the United States who will be a lawyer. That's a brilliant prediction. If you don't get that one right, you're, <laughs> you don't belong in this country full of lawyers. Um, that's easy. But you can make predictions that are just wildly impossible. And of course, they wouldn't, you wouldn't think they could possibly come true. But we're going to see today from the Old Testament prophets that they make predictions about the coming of a person they called the Messiah. They didn't know his name was Jesus, but they made very, very, very specific predictions, and they all coalesced in one human being named Jesus. I called the... The, the message today, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because it was the prophet Isaiah speaking 700 years before the time of Jesus. That's more than twice as old as our whole country. He prophesied that the one who come, his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So today we're going to look at the prophecies of the Old Testament. I hope I don't overwhelm you with them. I didn't do all of them, but just a, a sampling of them. And I decided that I would do the sampling based on a poem by Rudyard Kipling. Here's his poem. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. So what I did is I simply took the six questions from Rudyard Kipling's poem, and I applied them to the person who the Old Testament prophets predicted would be the Messiah. What? 
what will the Messiah be? Why? Why would the Messiah come? When? When will the Messiah come? How? How will the Messiah come? Where? Where will the Messiah come from? And who? Who will the Messiah be? Biblical prophecy specialists, Peter and Paul Lalonde, have noted that the Old Testament includes about 60 different prophecies with more than 300 references about the coming of the Messiah. It was through the fulfillment of these prophecies that Israel was told that she would be able to recognize the true Messiah when he came. And so let us look today at the candle for the prophets. What did the prophets tell us many, many, many years ago? First of all, let's answer the question, what? Now, any forecaster of the future could easily predict that a political leader in the future would be a businessman or a businesswoman or would be a lawyer or a general or perhaps even a physician. But there's no one, especially anyone Jewish, who could ever have predicted that the Messiah would be a king and a priest and a prophet. Why? Well, because according to the Jewish people, the kings had to come from the tribe of Judah. The priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. And the prophets, of course, they had to speak with absolute perfection. Can never make a mistake or they're a false prophet. And so it was that the prophets in the Old Testament predicted with great, great clarity that the Messiah would be a king and not just a king. He would be a king from the tribe of Judah and not just the tribe of Judah. He would be from the family of David. And the Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would be a priest and that the Messiah would be a prophet. Let's look at what they said. This is one of the oldest prophecies in the Bible. And this one, it goes back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It goes like this. By the way, this, these words are spoken by, by um, Jacob. That's one of the, the, the patriarchs of Israel. The year, we know when Jacob lived. There's no question. Jacob lived around the year 1800 BC. So we're talking about a prophecy almost 4,000 years old. And he is blessing his children, and he gets to his number four son, his fourth son. And he looks at his fourth son, and this is what he says. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. From you. Not his number one son. Now, if I was going to make this and you think of, you got to give preference to the number one son, or all through the time in, in the book of Genesis, it is not his number one son, Reuben, who is honored, but his son, Joseph, who is among royalty. Surely, out of you, Joseph, your sons Ephraim and Manasseh, out of you shall come the king. He says, no. He picks Judah, number four son, a son of the, of the mother Leah, who was not the favored wife. It's out of you, Judah, will come one who will bear the scepter and the obedience of all the nations will belong to him. What? That's crazy. Some years later, and this date is absolutely certain. There's no one 
uh, no chronological person in the world that doesn't know that this date is certain. About 1,000 BC, 3,000 years ago, we found um, David is alive. And these words are spoken by the prophet to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you, one who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's pretty clear. David, and of course, David comes from the tribe of Judah. And David is not some bigwig. He's, he's one of the later sons of a guy that lived in this little town called Bethlehem. He said, but from you, David, from you is going to come the king who will rule forever. Wow. And by the way, it is in this very passage where David says, I love you so much, Father in heaven, even though I've screwed up so royally, and yet you've forgiven me that I want to build you a house. I want to build you a great temple to honor your name. And God says, oh, no, no, David. I'm going to do something better. I'm not going to let you build me a house. Your son's going to build the house for me, but I'm going to do a billion times better. I'm going to build a house for you. Your house, David, is going to produce the king who will reign forever. Whoa. 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. Well, then we come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the great prophet, toward the end of the history of Judah, writing in the year 590 B.C., he said this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. And a branch is the messianic title. I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will raise, reign wisely and will do what is just and right in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and all Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. Here's his name. The Lord our righteousness. That's his name. Whoa. There's another prophet. This is Zechariah. He wrote around 520 B.C. Tell him, the hymn here is, um, uh, this is the prophet Je Zechariah speaking about a man named Joshua. Not the Old Testament, not the Joshua who led the general Joshua, but a different one. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two, between the priesthood and the kingship. So he says, this guy is going to be a king, but now he's going to be a priest. And then Moses, Moses wrote 1406 BC. He wrote this. The Lord your God will raise up for you, he's talking to the people of Israel, a prophet like me from among, your, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. So now Moses says, 
You will be a prophet. You'll be a king from the tribe of Judah. He will be a king from the family of David. He will be a king whose name is righteousness. He will be a priest and he will be a prophet. A little baby was born roughly 4 BC who lived on this earth only about 33 years, a very short period of time. After he was born, this is Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, he said, he speaks of Jesus. He says, you are a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus was a priest, but of a higher order than the order of Levi. Before Levi existed, when Levi was in the, in the body of Abraham, so you could say, he was subordinate to a higher priest, Melchizedek. So Jesus is not only a king, he's a priest. And then Jesus himself said, only in my hometown, among my relatives and in my own house, is a prophet without honor, speaking of himself. And on hearing these words, some of the people said, this is John chapter 7, surely this man is a prophet. So there you got it. A prophet a priest, and a king. The Old Testament predicted the Messiah would be a perpetual king forever, a true prophet, and a priest forever. That's like predicting in a very, in a very simple way someone who would be in America who would be the, a president, a Supreme Court justice, and a senator at the same time. We don't have such people. We long for good leadership. We live in a world where it is very, very hard to find. Can you imagine having a political leader who's mega powerful, but completely uncorrupted by power? A person of unassailable character and integrity who's eminently wise. He's great. He's good. He's godly. And his rule never ends. That's what the Old Testament prophets predicted. Well, why would the Messiah come is the second question. Why? In our world today, probably the greatest longing of all humanity is for peace. Two kinds of peace. One, peace inside myself or peace with God. Vertical peace and then horizontal peace. Peace among nations. Peace within communities, peace within our families, peace this way. Probably the, the greatest longing of human beings is that we would live lives of peace, peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with other people. Well, here's what the prophet Isaiah wrote about one who would come one day, perhaps the most important chapter in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Here's what he says about one who is clearly identified as the Messiah. Surely, he took up our sicknesses. He carried our sorrows. 
Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Messiah who comes one day will be pierced, mistreated, misjudged, all these things. But when he dies, his death will purchase peace for us. By his sufferings, we will be healed. Wow. That same Isaiah wrote in chapter 9, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Remember, the first one is peace with God. Now he's talking about peace on earth. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, from time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There will be one who will come, who will procure through his sufferings peace with God. And this same one will rule eternally peace among human beings on a governmental level. As you know, I, I travel many times to, to the Middle East and then... In one of our, the guide that we have had many times, he's Jewish and he's a secular Jew. He's not religious. But I, I was talking to him about Jesus and, and he said, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah. It's impossible. I said, why? He said, well, <laughs> you call this peace? Look at this world. All we got is guns and wars and we're desperate to stay alive and in a, in a, surrounded by a billion people who hate us. This is peace. The Messiah is going to bring peace. Well, the problem is the Messiah has two comings. The first coming was to bring peace with God. But his second coming is to bring peace on earth. It hasn't happened yet. That one's still future. That's why we long for the second coming. Well, when the angels greeted the birth of Jesus, as you know, we're going to focus on this in weeks ahead. Their, their words were glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on whom God's favor rests. And Jesus, just before he left this world, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. There's no greater need today than peace. Internal peace, external peace, vertical peace, horizontal peace, political peace, international peace, relational peace, community peace, church peace. Where have we got that anywhere? Familial peace. Peace. He is the prince of peace. This world will never know peace until the prince of peace reigns. And he's coming. We don't know when. Well, if you're going to think your prophecy, the most, the stupidest thing in the world you can ever do is give dates. You're an idiot to give a date. History is full. I went on the internet. You, you go on it sometime. 
so-called prophets who have given dates. It is a disaster because they're always wrong. Always wrong. Do you think God would actually give a date as to the coming of the Messiah? He does. He gives a date. Well, who in the world would do that? It's found in Daniel chapter 9. Lord willing, if I'm, if I'm here in, in the new year, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. And perhaps one of the most incredible chapters you'll ever find in the Bible is Daniel chapter 9. It begins with Daniel, one of the godliest people who's ever lived on this planet, praying to God. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. You should read it. Here, to our knowledge, Daniel's one of the only people in the Bible for whom we don't know anything he did wrong. Nothing. I'm sure he did. Because all he says in his prayers, Oh, I am my people of sin. I am my people of sin. I am my people of sin. It's a prayer of confession. After he finishes praying, this is what the Bible says. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that's Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the great angel, the man I had met in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. By whom? By whom? God. Can you imagine? An angel comes down to you and says, hey, I've just been in the presence of the Almighty God. And you know what he said about you? He says, I am impressed with that guy. God says that about somebody? Do you know how impressed he was? God says, Daniel, I'm going to give you a glimpse into the future that no one in human history has ever had. Because what he's about to give him in chapter 9 is called the bedrock of all biblical prophecy. And what he's going to say is, this is it. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. After 62 sevens, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off and will have nothing. In the verses there, in Daniel chapter 9, he gives Daniel, with dates, the outline of what's going to happen until the anointed one is cut off. Whoa, now if I was a mathematician, I'd be all over that one. Because prophets don't give dates. And remember, Daniel is writing 540 B.C. Now, we know... By the way, I did it again yesterday, and I'm not a very good mathematician, so I had to get out my calculator to try to help me. But all Bible scholars would say 77s is 70 years times 7 years, which is 490 years. So Daniel is now going to list from this event, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which we know when that happened, in March 444 B.C. by Artaxerxes, the Persian king. We know the date, the exact day. From that date, 490 years will pass before the Messiah. And by the way, if you're going to do the math, you can you probably start to do it right now. you got to be a little bit careful because remember, when Daniel wrote, they had a lunar calendar, not a Gregorian calendar. 
There's a different number of days per year. You've got leap years and all these other calculations you have to make. But if you do the calculations, you're going to come up with a date somewhere around 30 AD. What? I mean, this has never happened in human history. Never. Never has anyone given a date like that with such specificity. And guess what happened? It happened. Paul wrote this in Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And so God put together the history of Caesar Augustus and his census, and Quirinius and Herod the Great, to bring the Messiah to our earth at the particularly perfect right time. And history records it. Regina brought it up with the children, but it would be the equivalent of someone like Columbus in, let's take the year 1486, foretold that on July 20th, 1969, someone from Ohio would land on the moon. That's the equivalent. I mean, you got to scratch your head. I mean, any honest soul have to say, that's just weird. You can't do that. It's not possible. It happened. It happened. Well, if the answer to the question when is the most unlikely, the answer to the question how is the most shocking. Because the question now is, if I had to answer how would the Messiah come, well, I would say that easy. He'll, you know, he'd be born in, a, in some regal background and really cool and lots of pomp and circumstance, and that's how I'd have him come. But that's not what the prophet said. The prophet, this is the prophet Isaiah, here's what he said. The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him God with us. That's that's 700 years before the time of Jesus. A nutcase said that. Did he know about the birds and the bees? Come on. I was a, a teacher in Africa back in the 1970s. I was among Swazi and Zulu students, all my students. And uh, one day, one of the students, his name was Enoch Nzlovu, he stood up and he said, teacher, I have a question. And I said, yes, Enoch. He said, "Um, my mother gave birth to a chicken. Could you please explain how that happened? I was a biology teacher, and I was teaching on reproduction. (laughs) And so he asked, you know, how did his mother give birth to a chicken? And of course, I was laughing, but no one else laughed. And uh, I said, oh, my goodness. Well, that can't happen, of course, I said. And then, no, it was actually, Enoch didn't ask, ask the question. It was Enoch who stood up then and answered. He said, teacher, I know you don't understand these things, but I do, so I'll explain it. So he stood up and he said, we have this little, um, it, it's like, a, like an elf or something in their culture. And, and uh, he called it, it's called the togolosh, like a little elf that does tricks on people. He said, that's how this happens. You know, the togolosh it gives, uh, causes mothers to give birth to chickens. So... Oh, okay, that's crazy. This is just as crazy. The togolosh is just as crazy as a virgin give birth to a child. Virgins don't give birth because birds and the bees don't work that way. But Isaiah said that. This is what Matthew recorded. And by the way, Matthew is a very intelligent, well-educated man. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, that means sexually, she was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit. And this is Luke. He was a doctor. 
He probably knew how babies are made. This is a doctor speaking. This is how it will be, Mary asked the angel. Oh, no, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Weird, but it happened. What perfect symmetry. Because unlike any other human being that's ever lived, Jesus was both the Son of Adam and the Son of God. He was both human and divine. He was the sinless sin-bearer. He was the one who gave his life so that God could be both just and justify wicked people like us. He was a human being who could relate to us. And he was God who could die for us. Perfect. Well, where would the Messiah come from? This one's easy. (laughs) Maybe so easy, not so easy. But hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Micah said, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Well, that one, we know where Jesus was born. Bethlehem is significant because Bethlehem is the place where Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, died. It's the place where Benjamin was born. It's the place where Naomi was from. It's the place to which Ruth called her homeland. It was the place where David was born. And it's the place where the sacrificial animals for the altars in Jerusalem, just five miles down the road, were raised, prepared for sacrifice. has all kinds of connections. And the prophet Micah said, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And he wrote about 725 B.C. It's quite a prophecy. And of course, he was right. But then, though Bethlehem is in Judah, that's in the south, other prophets said that, that he, um, this is Isaiah, that he would, he would not be from there. He would be a Galilean. That's the north. Here's what the prophet Isaiah spoke, said. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's Galilee. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, the people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The great light of the Messiah will come from backwater Galilee. Not the cool place. Not the sophisticated place. He will come from Galilee. And sure, you know what happened. Here, in fact, Jesus was born in Judah, down in the south in Bethlehem, to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. But then he would be raised up in Galilee in the north, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And he would be called a Nazarene from the time of from the, the place of, of Nazareth. And by the way, if you've seen the, the news over the last two years, when ISIS took over in northern Iraq, when they found the homes of Christians, they put a big N on the door. The N means Nazrani, a follower of the Nazarene. It's a, a term of derision. Instead of being called Christians, they're called followers of the Nazarene man. 
Jesus. Incredible. Prophesied not only where he would be from, but where he would live. <laughs> it's like, um, it would be like predicting 700 years in advance that a president of the United States, a country that didn't exist at the time, will be born in pavilion, will live for a time in Mexico, and will claim Wyoming as his home state. You want to pull that one off? That's crazy. And it's not by accident that Jesus hailed from the country, not the city. From the backwater, not the headwaters. From the unsophisticated rural part of the country, not the sophisticated urban center of the country. From the area of lower education, not the Ivy Leagues. From Wyoming, not New York. That's where he's from. Well, who will he be? Last, who will this Messiah be? The oldest prophecy we have, dating from the writings of Moses, but actually dating from Adam and Eve, is this one found in Genesis chapter 3.15. These are the words of God. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, representing Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Satan, you're going to get in a blow, a painful one, but Satan's head will be crushed. There's only one person in human history who's ever done that, crushed the head of Satan. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will he be? He will be the head crusher. The one who will deal the death blow to Satan and all that he's been doing on this planet to destroy God's work since the beginning. He will be the Satan crusher, the head crusher. But also, Jeremiah the prophet said, this is the name by which he will be called. Our Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. He will be our righteousness. The Messiah will be our righteousness. We just went through the book of Romans. What's it all about? The righteousness of God offered to us. That's what the whole Bible is about. That God loves us so much that we don't have to earn his favor because we can't. None of us are righteous. But he offers us the gift of Christ's righteousness if we will accept it. And the Messiah was predicted to be the one who would finally and ultimately crush the head of Satan. And he would offer God's righteousness to us. And that's exactly what he did. This is Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Or this, from 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Oh, so what? So what? Well, number one, go figure. Do the math. Perhaps you've heard of Lee Strobel. He's written a number of fame, uh, well, very popular books today. This one is in his book called A Case for Faith. Here's what he wrote. Bible scholars tell us that nearly 300 references to 61 specific prophecies of the Messiah were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The odds against one person fulfilling that many prophecies would be beyond all mathematical possibility. It could never happen, no matter how much time was allotted. 
one mathematician's estimate of the, those impossible odds is, and I quote, one chance in a trillion, 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 thirteen trillions. Those are the odds. And by the way, just to refresh your math, a stack of one hundred dollar bills would be six hundred and thirty-one miles high to equal one trillion. Gives you a little idea of how big a trillion is. And I think we got a debt somewhere up there somewhere. I don't know what it is. Go figure. Number two, have confidence. The antiquity, the specificity, and the accuracy of God's prophecies about the birth of Jesus should bolster your confidence in the Word of God. Because we have every reason to have confidence in the Word of God. Take a stand. Why? Because the facts are there. The science is there, if you will. Remember, I say it over and over again, Christianity is primarily history. It is not moralism. It doesn't tell you how to be a good person, though that's part of it. It's not ritualism, how to be on the good side of God. It's not therapy, namely how to be happy, or mysticism, how to be more spiritual. It's not even wisdom, primarily. It's primarily the documentation of God's activity in time and space. That's what it is. It's history. This is what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all things, look up. For he's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. The very same Jesus rejected by men. He's coming again. He's coming again with power and great glory. Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this Christmas season where we get to reflect on the magnificence of Jesus. How stunning in every way, just beyond our description. Oh, Father, these facts are so powerful, but forgive us for how little stock we put in them. Forgive us for your great magnificence that we treat with such, such apathy. We're all guilty, Heavenly Father. We've sinned grievously against your, your great gift to us. But this Christmas season, I pray that you'd do a turnaround in our hearts. and You would help us to be people for whom our longing for Jesus and our following of Jesus and our lifting up of Jesus and our worship of Jesus is just stimulated in a fresh way. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our benediction today, if you'll please stand with me, is um, it's actually my favorite verse in the Bible. It's found in John chapter 1. After telling us in the first verses that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, it, it, it tells us that the Word is God. It says, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God bless you.